Most of us have heard the expression to stop and smell the roses. And we know what that means. It means to take some time out of the busyness of life to appreciate what's really important. And when it comes to the things that matter most, we need to pause and enjoy those times rather than just rush through them. And that's why we've come today, because there's no sweeter rose than the rose of Bethlehem. Uh, We have come to adore and to admire, to glorify and magnify our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no better resource to help us do that than God's own word to us. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be focusing on just verse 16 today, which we looked at last week, just began delving into last week. It's on page 933 in your pew Bible, 1 Timothy 3, 16. In this single verse, the Apostle Paul sums up in six short lines the greatness of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. This may have been a creed or a hymn of the early church. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This beautiful confession is God's own word to us. May he write its eternal truth deep into our hearts. I got a card a couple of weeks ago from a sweet little girl in our congregation who uh, drew a picture for me there in the card, and underneath it she had uh, some words of encouragement for me as her pastor and also some questions that she was putting to me, what it's like to be a pastor. And then after that she proceeded uh, to tell me something that was very important to her. She, she uh, said that she had a, this list of pets that she wanted. And uh, she said that she already had a fish, but she wanted me to know that she also wanted a dog, a cat, a horse, a hamster, a lizard, a bunny, and a bird. And then she concluded by saying, that's all I can think of. My birthday is on August 21st. I thought, that's quite a tall order. And uh, I said, if you get all those animals by your birthday, you could literally run your own zoo. Now, I know that most likely she's probably not going to get all of those animals. She might get some of them over time, but she's probably not going to get all of them, though perhaps she might over time. But as we celebrate our Savior's birthday, I'm reminded that we can rejoice that in him we find everything that is required for life and godliness. That there is, uh, those who look to the Lord lack no good thing. Um, and that's really our focus for today as we look at 1 Timothy 3.16. Scripture says that in everything in Christ we have what pertains to life and godliness. And as we think about that term godliness, it's important because it's, a, it's perhaps the central theme in 1 Timothy. The word is used nine different times throughout this letter. So it's clearly an important point that Paul is making. 
And we've seen that godliness is a deep reverence for God that is reflected, that is revealed in our behavior. And Paul says in verse 15, he wants the conduct of everyone in church to reflect this reality. He wants God's people to be godly. He wants them to be godlike in their behavior. Because the church is the household of God. The church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. Paul then in verse 16, the verse we just read, summarizes what that truth is. I mean, if we're a pillar of the truth, then we need to know what truth it is that we're upholding, that we're supporting, that we're proclaiming. And Paul sums it up in six short clauses in verse 16. And every clause, every truth is ultimately centered on Jesus Christ, who himself declared in John 14, 6, I am the truth. So if you want to know what godliness looks like, Paul says, look at Jesus as revealed in the Word of God. Uh, there is no one more godly, there is no one more godlike than Jesus because Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus is God in the flesh. As Eliana read just a moment ago from Matthew chapter 1, He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we want to work through this verse today. And we covered the first line last week. He was manifested in the flesh. This is the first thing that we're told. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And the first thing we read is that he, that is Jesus Christ, was manifested in the flesh. We saw that that word manifested, phanerao in the Greek, literally means to make visible. We talked about how Jesus existed eternally with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he became visible when he was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and became a human being. And again, as we read a moment ago, Matthew tells us all this took place to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet, meaning the prophet Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7, 14. But let's move on to the next line, because we, we want to discover all that this verse says about the newborn king, Jesus Christ. He was not only manifested in the flesh, he was also vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. How do you know a person is who he claims to be? You must have proof of what? Proof of identity. This past week, I I went to the jail, uh, not because I was arrested. I actually went in to um, minister to some men in there to do a Bible study. And even though I've been there a few times, uh, the police officer insists before they grant me entrance that I show proof of my identity. Uh, I sign in as, as Matt Fletcher, um, I tell them that I'm Matt Fletcher, but they want to see that uh, proof that I am Matt Fletcher, Matt Fletcher in the flesh. And so I always carry in my, my driver's license, and, and, I, and I gave it to the, to the police officer. And I noticed that as she, she looked at the driver's license, and she looked at me, looked at the driver's license, looked at me, and she didn't look very impressed. <laughs> but she believed who I claimed to be, that I really was that person, and so I was granted admittance. And as I thought about 
Jesus being vindicated by the Spirit, meaning that he was proved right by the Spirit in who he claimed to be. I thought, you know, it's one thing to be just an average guy like myself. It'd be another thing maybe to even claim to be some uh, uh, celebrity, maybe some sort of a, a famous athlete or a movie star or whatever. I have at times been mistaken in my earlier years for Ted Danson. Um, when I candidate my last church, a kid actually thought that I was Larry Bird. He never saw me play basketball, apparently. And uh, even here in Rochester, I've been mistaken for a local weatherman. Maybe you know who they're talking about. I don't know. But um, I, I have been mistaken for different people at different times. But it's one thing to, be, to claim to be an average person, another thing to be, uh, claim to be some sort of celebrity. It's another thing altogether to claim to be God. And that's who Jesus claimed to be. In fact, at one point, the religious leaders picked up stones to, to, to kill him because he claimed to be equal with God, claiming that he had the power to forgive sins. And God alone has that power. Jesus received worship as God. Jesus did the works of God during his earthly ministry and so much more. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. But one would need more than a driver's license or a birth certificate to believe anybody who would claim to be God. What you would need is not natural proof of your identity, but supernatural proof of your identity, right? And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit provided for Jesus. And that's what's meant when it says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. The word vindicated literally means to prove right. The Holy Spirit proved that Jesus was right in what he said, right in what he did, that he was right in claiming to be the Son of God. The Holy Spirit proved Jesus' deity in a number of ways. Um, he proved it at Jesus' baptism when he descended on him from heaven like a dove. And at that same point, there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit proved Jesus' deity by preserving him from sin throughout his earthly life and ministry, that though he was God in the flesh, he was God in the physical flesh, not God in the sinful sort of flesh. Scripture says that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Because he was led by the Spirit, he was filled with the Spirit, he walked with the Spirit. The Spirit preserved him from sin, and God is the only one who has never sinned. When Jesus performed miracles, especially when he cast out demons, the Holy Spirit proved his divine identity. At one point, Jesus even said, uh, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then you will know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the Holy Spirit um, verified Jesus' divine identity at his baptism um, through his various miracles. The Holy Spirit did it by preserving Jesus from sin. But the most powerful way that the Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus, and we talked about this briefly last week, was through the resurrection. Romans 1.4 says, He was shown to be the Son of God when He was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's what the angels announced, right? For unto you is born this day in the city of Bethlehem a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the long-awaited Messiah. This is a straight 
declaration of Jesus' deity. It's the same pronouncement the angels made at Jesus' birth, which is interesting because the very next line in the Creda is, He was seen by angels. Great, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Thirdly, he was seen by angels. Luke, the first century physician and historian, records what happened the night of Jesus' birth. Or We're going to be reading some of this passage tonight, but look with me, if you would, please, at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. It's on page 805 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. I'll simply read these verses with little comment to show that Jesus was seen by angels. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So Jesus was seen by angels at his birth. Uh, Jesus' birth was announced by the angels to the shepherds. The angels told the shepherds exactly how they would find Jesus along with his parents, where they were, that Jesus would be in a manger. It's also interesting that that word seen in the original Greek is the word hara'o. And, and that means not only to see or observe, but it can also mean to visit or to attend to. And this is exactly what we see the angels doing throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. They were not just um, passive onlookers, if you will. Mark says that when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil and that he was with, that he was among the wild animals, Mark says that angels were ministering to him. Luke affirms that they did so again in Gethsemane the night before Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus there was praying in great agony as he anticipated the suffering that would come upon him. God's wrath against our sin that Jesus took upon himself. He was in great agony as he anticipated this uh, unimaginable suffering that he was going to endure for us. And then we read in the Gospel of Luke, that at that moment, an angel came from heaven and strengthened him. Angels witnessed the resurrection and told the women who had come to Jesus' tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. And angels appeared again at Jesus' ascension. After Jesus commissioned his disciples, remember what he said in Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Luke tells us what happens right after this commission in verses 9 to 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, the disciples are gazing into heaven as Jesus went, 
Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's one more thing I want to say about Jesus being seen by angels. And that is one other possible interpretation of this clause, which makes sense in light of the next line in the creed of 1 Timothy 3.16. He was proclaimed among the nations. Who were the initial proclaimers of the, of the risen Christ? The apostles and others who witnessed Jesus' resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, meaning at the time that Paul wrote this, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Acts 1.3 says he presented himself alive to them. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus was seen by all these people, hundreds of them, including the apostles, who then spread the good news concerning Jesus' resurrection. The Greek word for angel, angelos, literally means messenger. So it can refer to a heavenly messenger, what we would typically call an angel, or to an earthly messenger, a human messenger, such as an apostle or another eyewitness of Christ. The context determines the meaning. And so when Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16 that Jesus was seen by angels, it could mean that he was seen by these heavenly messengers and in all the passages we just saw, but it could also mean that he was seen by human messengers who saw the resurrected Christ and then proclaimed him among the nations. And that's exactly what the apostles did. That's exactly what Jesus commissioned them to do when he presented himself alive to them by many proofs. Jesus was first proclaimed among the nations on what great event? Do you remember from Acts 2? Starts with a P. Pentecost. Very good. This event, this festival took place less than two months after Jesus' death and resurrection and less than or just 10 days after his ascension. Acts 2 tells us that when the day of Pentecost arrived, listen, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews from every nation under heaven. If you know the story, Peter preaches. The Holy Spirit works a miracle so that everybody from all these different nations hears the gospel preached in his or her own tongue. 3,000 people believe the word that is preached to them. They're baptized as a public profession of their faith and they're added to the church. And then the gospel just continues to go forth from there, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ is proclaimed among the nations. Within a few decades of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the gospel had pretty much been spread throughout the entire known world, which is remarkable when you think about them not having the modes of transportation that we do today. It shows you how aggressive the apostles and other eyewitnesses were in spreading the good news about Jesus. 
In his letter to the Colossians, the apostle Paul wrote, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Later in this same chapter of Colossians, Paul reiterates, the gospel that you heard has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, meaning the entire known world at that time. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So these verses reveal not only that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, but that he was believed on in the world. And that's the very next line in the creed. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. This is the fifth clause in the creed. The New Testament records that people from multiple nations trusted Christ as their risen Lord and Savior. They believed that Jesus died for their sins, just as the Scripture said that he fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and that he was raised again the third day, just as the Scripture said, just as was prophesied throughout the centuries. They believed that Jesus died for their sins and rose again for their justification to make them right with God. This gift of salvation was purchased by the precious blood of Christ. And it's important for you to know, as we proclaim the gospel to you, that this gift is received by faith, just like a child opening a present at Christmas time. A present that has already been purchased by another and yet is given freely to them. Jesus said, No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless you come as a little child, in humble faith, trusting in Christ alone. Scripture says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard and are justified, that is, declared righteous by His grace as a free gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who lived the perfect life of obedience for us, who died taking on the penalty that we deserve because of our unrighteousness, because of our transgressions against God, and then rose by the power of the Holy Spirit three days after He died, proving that he was who he said he was and that he did what he came to do to conquer sin, to pay the price for our sins, to conquer uh, death and Satan for all who trust in him. That's the gospel that was proclaimed then and this is the gospel that we proclaim to you. As the gospel was proclaimed among the nations, Jesus was believed on in the world. And again, that's the same gospel that is being proclaimed and believed on throughout the world today. You know, if you are a Christian, you are a living proof of that reality. The gospel spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And thousands upon thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, two millennia later, here we are, a room full of believers worshiping Jesus Christ. A short while ago, I read a newly published book titled, Is the Commission Still Great? The author is Steve Richardson, the president of Pioneers USA, which is dedicated to planting gospel-centered churches among unreached people groups. 
And it's important that we focus on those people groups throughout the world that had never yet heard of the name of Jesus. But sometimes in our zeal to do that, we can almost take a glass half empty approach and we talk about how much hasn't been done in reaching the world for Christ. And it's important that we keep that vision before us. But today I want to encourage you that the gospel has been proclaimed in all the world among the nations and that the Lord Jesus has been believed on, been believed on throughout the world. And in this book, Is the Commission Still Great? Steve Richardson points out eight myths about missions. And the final myth that he addresses and actually dismantles is that missions is failing. That missions is failing. I wish I had time to read to you all the statistics that are shared in this book to show how the gospel continues to spread and bear fruit in the world today. But I'll highlight just a few of them that I have selected for your encouragement, and all of these are well documented. Operation World estimates that Christianity is growing at an annual rate of 2.6%, which is more than double the rate of the global population rate. Okay, so the global population rate as recently as 2020 was just over 1% annually, but the uh, evangelical Christians are growing 2.6% annually throughout the world. The World Christian Encyclopedia states that the number of evangelical Christians in the world has increased from 112 million in 1970 to 386 million in 2020. More encouraging stats could be shared regarding the astonishing road of evangelical Christianity in places like Latin America, Europe, Asia, Africa. But to give you just one example, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined since Islam came to Iran. Praise the Lord. After these... Sharing these and other statistics, Steve Richardson remarks, and I quote, Clearly the Holy Spirit has done a mighty work through the church in the last century, and he isn't finished yet. The growth of the church is often hidden because God is on a stealth mission. He frequently works undercover, redeeming people and building his church quietly. God has an amazing ability to hide his work in plain sight. His kingdom grows slowly and inexorably like a mustard seed. End quote. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He was and is proclaimed among the nations. It's not going to make the news headlines, but never doubt that this work of God is taking place around the world. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and that takes us to the final line of the creed, he was taken up in glory. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the only line that seems to appear out of chronological sequence. The words taken up translate the Greek word onolambano, which is the same word used in Acts 1 to describe the ascension of Jesus. Jesus was taken up in glory, and then proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. So the question that comes to me is, why would this one line out of all of them 
appear out of chronological sequence. I think it's for the sake of emphasis. To emphasize Jesus' enthronement and exaltation. That he was taken up in glory. And that's where he sits today. Hebrews 1.3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I'm not convinced it's completely out of chronological sequence because I think there is a strong implication in this final clause of this creed that points us to the second advent of Jesus Christ. Remember the angel's words at the moment of Jesus' ascension. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, in a cloud of glory. So maybe it's really not out of sequence after all. Friends, let us remember that the baby in the cradle became the man on the cross who now wears the crown of glory. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's the high note on which this hymn ends. As one author put it, what better way to end a hymn than with the glorious praise of the glorious Christ? The question for you is, when he returns in power and glory, will you be ready? Have you believed who Jesus claimed to be? Have you not only beheld the crucified and risen Christ, but have you embraced him yourself as your Lord and Savior? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. If you confess that, then it holds tremendous implications for you as a Christian by way of personal application as we consider our heaven-sent Savior. Since Jesus was manifested in the flesh, let us glorify him with our bodies. Since Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, let us rejoice that because of God's grace, we too will be vindicated on the day of judgment, having received a righteousness that is not our own, but the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Since Jesus was seen by angels, let us join them in worship as we gaze upon the Savior who was crucified and risen for us and now sits in glory. Since Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, let us also testify to his own grace in our lives, sharing the good news of salvation with our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, our playmates. Let us share the good news of salvation with them, and let us also continue to participate in the work of world missions around the globe, so that all peoples might praise him. Since Jesus was believed on in the world, let us trust him fully for our salvation and for everything else we need in life. And since Jesus was taken up in glory, let us await his turn with eager expectation, longing for the day when, when we will see with our own eyes the great mystery of godliness, where we will behold the greatness of God incarnate, the Savior who came from heaven to redeem us from our sins, that we might be reconciled to God and live in glory forever with Him. And so we pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. Would you stand with me, please, as our music team makes their way to the platform. If you are a true worshiper of Jesus Christ, I invite you to recite with me 
one last time today this Christian confession before we sing our final song. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory.